To what's this Dao all about? A lighthearted look at Taoism featuring Dr. Carl Totten and Todd Perry. Carl is the founder of the Taoist Institute in North Hollywood, California. Todd Perry knows a little about Taoism and is mainly here because he owns a few microphones. Now, let's learn what's this Dao all about. everybody, and welcome back to the What's This Dow All About podcast. My name is Todd Perry from Long Beach, California, in my uh, virtual studio here, uh, social distancing with my good friend, Dr. Carl Totten. Hello, everybody. Good to be back. On today's show, we're going to discuss a little bit of Wu Wei. We have some listener mail, and we're going to go through some uh, chapters of the Tao Te Ching. Uh, But first of all, as everybody knows... You can hit up our website, and we have about two and a half hours worth of audio available for you with uh, an unreleased show, Finding Talents in Chapters 42 and 53, and three guided uh, meditations by Dr. Carl Totten uh, that you can get with a $35 donation. Uh, With just a $15 donation, we'll give you an unreleased show, so sometime when we don't have a show out, you can listen to some fresh content. And it helps us uh, go about spreading the word of the Tao worldwide via our podcast, which it does take a bit of time, and there are some expenses involved. So it's nice uh, when people help us out. So let's get right to it. Um, The concept of Wu Wei is one of the most often discussed and misunderstood uh, aspects of Taoism. And I think just because there isn't really a equivalent in Western thought, whether religion or possibly uh, philosophy. I haven't really ran into anything that's really popular in Western thought, so I think that we kind of miss it, and even myself as somebody who studies the Tao and discusses it with you, I often, when I think, how do I apply Wu Wei to a certain situation, I kind of don't know what to do, and I'm at a loss uh, for it, because it's such a difficult thing to grasp. It's very slippery to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found... A video by a man named Edward Slingerland, who is a uh, guy who is is a uh, somebody who interprets Eastern philosophy for Western audiences, uh, discussing it. So I have some audio clips of that. So we're going to listen to it, and then uh, Dr. Totten, if you could share your thoughts on it. And the interesting thing is, often when we talk about Wu Wei, we talk about it from uh, mostly about kind of achieving goals and doing things like I applied Wu Wei to do X, Y, Z. This is more of a social take on it. So here we go. Wu Wei is a early Chinese term that means literally no doing or uh, no trying. But I think a better translation is effortless action. And it's the central spiritual ideal for these early thinkers I look at. So the Confucians and the Taoists. And what it looks a little bit like flow or being in the zone as an athlete. So you're, uh, you're very effective. You're moving through the world in a very efficient way, the social world and physical world. But you don't have a sense of uh, doing anything. You don't have a sense of effort. You don't have a sense of yourself as an agent. You kind of lose yourself in the activity you're involved in. 
And you're not only efficacious in terms of skill in the world, you also have this power that the early Chinese call, unfortunately the Mandarin pronunciation is duh, which sounds kind of funny, but it's uh, uh, often translated as virtue, or it means something like charismatic power, charismatic virtue. It's this uh, energy you kick off, an aura that you kick off when you're in a state of wei. And this is why these early thinkers want wei, because for both of them, the Confucians and the Taoists, it's the key to political and spiritual success. So if you're a Confucian, getting into a state of wei gives you this power, duh, and this allows you to attract followers without having to force them or try to get them to follow you. People just spontaneously want to follow you. If you're a Taoist, it's what relaxes people, puts them at ease, and allows you to move through the social world effectively without harm. So everybody wants this because it's a very uh, uh, it's the key to success. But they're all involved in this tension then of how do you try to be effortless. So it's interesting. He talks about Wu Wei uh, kind of like it's charisma. You know, uh, it's like often they talk about people and they say, oh, they just had it. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. and it's 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 an ineffable thing, and it's really hard to realize. But there there are people that have this power. But it, it looks a lot like Wu Wei. You know, it's the idea of somebody who moves through the world effortlessly, and you know they're they're not neurotic. Um, they put you at ease, and there's a power to that. And usually, these types of people are intelligent or whatever. You know, you find there's politicians that have it. It's like. My uncle once said that he uh, he took a plane ride with Ronald Reagan when he was the governor of California. Mm-hmm. And he said he sat next to him and it was like, he said the guy was like a ray of light. He goes, the guy, there was some, there was a out of kind of a, another worldly charisma about the man that made him just likable and made you feel like you were the only person in the room. You know, talking to him and they say, you know, Bill Clinton was definitely that yes. way. He'd sit yes. and give you a handshake and bring you in and you would just be completely seduced by this person. Or when people first saw Madonna perform just in a New York nightclub, they're like, oh, my God, what is it that this person has? And the way Edward Slingerland is talking about it, he's talking about kind of a sense of Wu Wei. And, but the interesting thing is, as he brings up at the end of the clip, is like, how does one work to appear effortless, right? Because they seem completely contradictory. Well, I think the the key is the word work. <laughs> you know, remember he correctly translated it as effortless action, and because it's effortless, it it really isn't work. It's the person just being naturally themselves, and when a person is naturally themselves. Remember, if, if we are all part, the, we representing the microcosmic are part of the larger macrocosmic. Remember, as above, so below. As within, mm-hmm. so without. And so if we are truly, fully present in the present moment, what does this present moment actually contain? Everything <laughs> within the Tao. And so if we are really in that flow of ourself in contact with and in the flow of the Tao, we have very few, if any, limitations. Probably the only limitations are the ones that we actually impose on ourselves through our limited thinking or by trying to be overbearing. See, and that creates a type of a limitation. And then then it gets pushed back from others on the outside. But if a person truly has found 
their inner Tao, you know, what we call that sacred space inside, this place of unity consciousness, in there, trust me, is a sense of the entire universe. You know, every one, I'm, I'm sure you've ever read about having a, an experience of satori, of enlightenment or awakening, the common thread is that people who have that experience feel that they have become in touch with the totality of existence, the whole mm-hmm. of the universe, and feels that from that point forward that when they're acting, they're acting in concert with all of the universe and with all of that with, with connection to the energy and power of the universe. And a person who is coming from that space doesn't have to do much <laughs> because everything everything that they are is doing it for them. You know, like you said, you know, just being in the presence of such a being, you, you can feel the energy, you can feel the vitality, you can feel the power. And so I think that all of us being part of the Tao, being part of the universe, have this capacity to connect with that aspect within if we can do two things. One, listen, and then awaken. But awakening doesn't happen unless we actually tune in and listen. And and very often, of course, our brains are working so quickly and we're thinking and overthinking so much that we really rarely take the time to listen to that voice within. And the voice within, at first, it initially, tends to be very quiet because we're, we're yelling and screaming over it so much you can't hear it. <laughs> you, know, you know, our brain is, uh, you, know, you know, running at 100 miles an hour. And, uh, and this, this sense that in, that's inside that from our early years, you know, we have not really been taking the time and allowing the space to tune into that so that side of us has faded. One of the main purposes of meditation, of course, is what? To sit down, kind of quiet the mind, slow down the breath. For what purpose? For this very purpose, so that we can really tune in to this internal Tao. And by doing so, find the universe, find the great Tao, and become in harmony with that. You know, uh, here's here's uh, Edward Slingerland uh, talking about how he thinks that we can get to this Great. point. So the first strategy is the early Confucian strategy, which I refer to as carving and polishing strategy, which is essentially you're going to try really hard for a long time, and if you do that, eventually the trying will fall away, and you'll be spontaneous in the right way. So you practice ritual, you engage in learning with fellow students, and eventually somehow at some point you make the transition from trying to having internalized these things you're learning and being able to embody them in an effortless way. The second strategy, the the uncarved block or going back to nature strategy, is the uh, Tao Te Ching or the primitivist Taoists. And they essentially think the Confucian strategy is doomed. If you are trying to be virtuous, if you're trying to be a Confucian gentleman, you're never going to be a Confucian gentleman. Anyone trying to be benevolent is never going to actually be benevolent. They're just going to be this hypocrite. 
And so their strategy is undo all this learning that you've been taught. So get rid of culture, get rid of learning, uh, actually physically drop out of society. So they want you to go live in the countryside in a small village. And it looks a lot like kind of 1960s hippie movement, you know, back to nature, get rid of <laughs> uh, technology, get rid of all the bad things that society has done to us. There's good points to this strategy too. One of the main insights I think of the Taoists, these early Taoists, is a way in which social values, social learning can corrupt our natural preferences. So we're, uh, you know, body images and advertising teach women that they have to be anorexic if they're attractive. Um, we're taught that we always need to have the latest iPhone. So, you know, we have a perfectly good iPhone, but then we see the new iPhone and suddenly our old iPhone isn't good anymore. And there's a lot of good literature on this in psychology on the hedonistic treadmill. We're never quite happy with what we have. As soon as we get it, we want the next thing. And the Tao Te Ching thinks Confucianism encourages that. And the solution to get off that hedonistic treadmill is to just stop and go back to nature and be simple. So that's the, the uncarved block strategy. Uh-huh. Good stuff, huh? Very nice. Very nice. And, you know, it's said that uh, Confucius at one point actually met uh, Lao Tzu. <laughs> oh, know, yeah. They, yeah, they were around at the same period of time. And, when, um, and, and of course, Confucius was not a man who was at a loss for words, <laughs> hardly ever. You know, he was always talking and, and um, you know, espousing and uh, giving his thoughts on things, which is one of the reasons why he's so famous. Because uh, at that time in China, you know, there was the warring states period and there was a lot of uh, disharmony and the family and uh, political structures, social structures had essentially fallen apart. And he said basically his, most of his theories are about how can a society or even a family uh, impose a structure so that society works so that a family works and mm -hmm. he did that by saying you know basically in a country you know the person in charge should be uh you know the, the the emperor and then there's the lords of the court and then there's the governors and on down and in a family of course the dad the father's in charge and then the mother and then the uh, oh, then the bro the boys, the brothers, and then lastly the girls. <laughs> mm. You know, you know. So er everything had this very uh, kind of artificially structured way. But but if people adhered to that, that structure provided a certain sense of order in society, and that's what he was after: was order, structure, order, so that things would quote work. Um, uh, it's very interesting to me that Lao Tzu and Confucius are both going towards the same way, which is having, obviously, people be happy and there being order in society. Uh, Confucianism was like, let's put structure, let's create structure, let's, you know, out of thin air and, and, and impose it on people. And Lao Tzu was like, actually, there's already a structure to everything. We just need to let it happen. Right. You know, to, it's it's to, anarchism versus communism, right, right? We need to just tune into the the field, to the structure that's already there. And by the way, after uh, Confucius met uh, Lao Tzu, uh, he I mean he was literally kind of struck silent. I mean he 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 couldn't speak for a while. Very rare for him. And his followers, you know, Confucius followers said, "Well, what happened?" And he said, "Today I met a dragon." 
<laughs> but you know, imagine you you are trying to impose this will on society that you think will make it better, and somebody comes up to you and simply says, "No, we just need to undo everything." <laughs> you know, it's like you're you're writing treatises and and writing books and creating monuments and you know this whole thing, and then someone's like, "No, we just need to actually untie the knots." You know, mm-hmm. that's a such a powerful thing, mm-hmm. and you know, and I think this paradigm. Get, it repeats, oh, like most things, over and over and over. You know, like today, you know, to make society work, what should we do? Should we impose s- stronger law and order and have more prisons and, and uh, you know, more active police and, you know, stop and frisk and blah, blah, blah? Or should we correct the imbalances and inequalities in society and have a sense of social justice and allow people to really thrive and, you know, people who have been, you know, discounted and marginalized in the world and empower them and, and, and support them, them with the institutions and the nurturance they need uh, to repair and, and, and thrive and proliferate to the best of their abilities. You know, what, what's the best way, you know, to approach uh, a, a society so that it functions for everyone. You see, there's some different, very different uh, ways of thinking about that. Sound like it's going back to Confucius and uh, Lao Tzu. <laughs> yes, exactly. It was, I was reading the other day, and this guy was writing, basically saying that every time you make a law, you create violence. Because every law needs to be backed up by... Yeah, violence. Yeah, by, by by force. By force, authority. It's a, you know, in the fact, laws are either. In fact, didn't Lao Tzu say in one of the chapters somewhere that you know, essentially, you know, by creating a law, you just created a criminal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and laws are only imposed by either physical violence, you know, locking you up or beating you up or killing you, or uh, by robbing you and taking your money. You know, uh, <laughs> or psychological I, violence. You know, yes, yes, you know, threats, intimidation. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, that's violent too. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I was, I was thinking, you know, if you really took politics and boiled it down simply, you know, if you looked at it at American politics, you have, uh, you have, you you have, you have, you have, basically, you know, you create structure in society by either robbing people. Or by committing violence. And Democrats are fine with the robbing, but don't like the physical violence. And Republicans like the physical violence, but don't like the robbing. <laughs> and libertarians don't like robbing or physical violence. <laughs> and I think everybody falls on some continuum of, yeah, we'll have mild robbery and mild violence. <laughs> or a lot of violence and no robbery. Or no violence, no robbery. Um, Isn't that funny? <laughs> yeah. I think I'm going to get an angry email from that. <laughs> I think we're going to get an angry email on this show every time somebody listens to it. We're well, get an on, angry the, email. on the other hand, let's listen to Lao Tzu for a moment. Chapter 75, he says, why are the people starving? Because the rulers eat up the money in taxes. <laughs> yeah. Therefore, the people are starving. Why are yeah. the people rebellious? Because the rulers interfere too much. Therefore, they are rebellious. Why do the people think so little of death? Because the rulers demand too much of life. Therefore, the people take death lightly. Having little to live on, one knows better than to value life too much. Aha. (laughs) Well, now let's run over to some uh, our listener mailbag. 
And uh, this piece of listener mail kind of dovetails into the conversation we just had about Wu Wei, and that's um, from someone uh, who goes by hopefully something. My question, if the Tao is incarnated as a human, like the Christian God was incarnated as Jesus, what kind of person might they be? And would anyone suspect who they are? <laughs> so, Dr. Totten, who do you think this, you know, Taoist Jesus or whatever, you know, <laughs> if they were, you know, it's the what if God was one of us, the song. You know, what oh, if, what a great song. <laughs> yeah, what if the Tao was one of us? Uh, well, and of course, who would it be? of course, we did have Lao Tzu and Chan, so, you know, people like that. But, you know, that's a difficult question to answer because the Taoist the concept of Tao or God is very different than the Western one of an embodied God with human features. Uh, on one hand, that is, uh, of course, but on another hand, you know, if as I've been mentioning, if each of us is truly aligned with the Tao and we become a living, breathing expression of the Godhead or the Tao, then any of us could become a person who embodied this kind of ideal of of the fully awakened, fully uh, uh, enlightened, uh, fully capacitated individual that we often attribute as, quote, God. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think of my Zen teacher who's very, very simple, but and oh, yeah. at the same time, he's always content. He's very knowing, but yet he's always open to learn. He's always aware of what is happening, yet he's always satisfied and grateful with what he has. He's, he's all, above all, he's always fully present in the present moment, not waiting for what's next and not regretting, for what, regretting what has already happened. He's not trying to do or be anything or anywhere other than in the moment which he says contains the entirety of the universe in all of its fullness. Who could want or expect more than that? Wow. Uh, You know, I I agree with you, and I I think the... Just thinking of characteristics, I thought the person would be funny, you know, because there's a humor in the Tao. Uh, Casual, wise, generous... Uh, someone that people naturally gravitate to, but they don't know why. Mm-hmm. Uh, not boastful, warm but detached, childlike, creative, balanced, and sincere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I know some people that embody two or three of those things, <laughs> you know, but not all. Uh, but you know, I think it would be someone that that has all those attributes and. As Bob Dylan says on his new record, contains multitudes. Con- yes, yes. Um, I just got that album a couple of days ago, by the way. Oh, I love it! I love it. Fantastic, and, and I contain uh, the, multitudes. Yeah, and multitudes. <laughs> yeah. The other thing I was thinking about in terms of this godlike, you know, a person with godlike characteristics, they, you know, part part of the problem of even imagining what that would be like is that we are we exist in third in a third dimensional reality a third dimensional universe and world at at other dimensional levels you know above this one four dimension 
you see, we, our world is characterized by polarity. Yin, mm-hmm. yang. Right, wrong. Good, bad. This, that. Right? That characterizes mo- much of human existence <coughs> on planet Earth right now. At the very next dimensional level, fourth dimension, theoretically, what one conceptualizes, conceives of in consciousness instantaneously just manifests. Right. See, so, so there is no lack, there is no wanting, there is no striving. See, so all of that whole domain is just gone <laughs> instantaneously, you know, and that results in a very different type of consciousness and a very different type of organism. Now, even that, though, theoretically still has some boundaries and limitations because it's in a body. You know, mm-hmm. yes, it, it it can just think of something and that manifests, but it still has to think of it for it to happen. <laughs> you know, right? Because again, there's a body, so there's a little there's, there's not much of a time delay. You know, you think and then it is. You know, We're, now above that level, fifth, sixth dimension and higher, it's completely formless theoretically. There are no more bodies, so there's no more need for. Anything that a body would have need for biologically, you know. Instead, everything is in its most primal state, which is pure energy, just pure energy in touch with the Tao, in touch with the universe, in touch with the divine God, if you will, at all times, because there's no longer any separation at all between any of that. Now, what that type of existence is like, we, I think, in our polarized brains, I don't think we can even hardly imagine it. No, no. <laughs> it's beyond our capacity to even conceptualize for the most part. Um, and, and the closest we're going to get is, again, is in meditation where we start to reach that kind of timeless, kind of void frame space that's very interesting and can definitely be attained in meditation. But still, we always we still have to come back to the a body, and in fact, while you're sitting there for long periods of time in meditation, what do you suddenly start to become really aware of after a oh, while? Your body. <laughs> what is happening with my knee? You know, oh, my knee, my back, you know, yeah, my joints, you know. See, so we're we're always tied here in that respect, you know, and, and we and we have to obey one law above all at all times, and that's the law of what gravity, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's no way here on Earth we're going to get away from gravity at any time, you know, or, or, or either that or we just suddenly go flying off into space, <laughs> which is also not going to happen. It sounds like, sounds like fun at some point. <laughs> uh, let's get to Chapter 71 and conclude our fine conversation today. Very good. All right. Chapter seventy one, the Tao Te Ching. Knowing ignorance is strength, ignoring knowledge is sickness. If one is sick of sickness, then one is not sick. The sage is not sick because he is sick of sickness, therefore he is not sick. Hmm. The six sheik's sixth sheik is sick, is what I think of immediately. (laughs) Yeah, try to say that fast six times, right? (laughs) The sage is not sick because he is sick of sickness. (laughs) Therefore, he's not sick. (laughs) You know, 
I think that, you know, we are, a cult, as a culture, we've become infatuated at some levels with illness and, and also with addiction, by the way. Mm. Our whole system of health and medical care is predicated on being sick or in recovery. It's not a wellness and a vitality model at all. Or being addicted to the drugs that keep you healthy. Exactly. And here Lao Tzu is saying the sage is not sick because he is sick of sickness. So when we get to the point where we identify with the wholeness of nature and the Tao, which is constantly in balance and harmony, I think most common illnesses just disappear. Kind of the energetic framework, the structure for the illness will have vanished. And that's one of the reasons why I myself personally often go for 15 or 20 years at a time without even so much as a cold. You know, whenever I feel an illness or a disease starting in my body, I let it go by returning to a healthy state in my consciousness and then allow that to overshadow my body with the restored image of health. Usually within minutes of an approaching illness, it's just vanished. I just have just let it go. Wow. I've tried that before after you told me, and oh. I failed. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I need to try harder, I guess. I you don't know. know. I mean, I have, I swear, you know, I was an EMT, licensed as an EMT for 30 years, working mostly street fairs and sporting events and things like that. But in 30 years of working with sick, injured people who were in great physical, emotional distress, I know how Ill, what illnesses look like and feel like when they start. And I swear, over the years, from time to time, I have felt things what felt like the beginning of a stroke or a heart attack try to start in my body. I think I felt cancer try to start in my body. And in every instance, I just stop, slow down, and basically disappear, whatever that is trying to start, and go right back to health. Usually, wow. with sometimes within seconds, usually within minutes, and on a bad day, you know, it might take a day or two, you know, to just kind of send it away and, and go back to the, the natural state, which, of course, is being fully functioning and healthy. Now, do you think that you develop that ability because of through things like meditation, through things like the 10-day gong that you shared with us that people can download on our website, that... It was through the, that kind of consciousness of the body you developed over time gave you more control and a sense that these are, things are happening, which maybe the rest of us who are not as connected with their body don't realize these processes mm-hmm. are taking place. I, I think that's one reason, but I think there's something else. You know, none of my teachers ever taught me to do what I just said. I figured it out. And somehow, and the, but the way I think I figured it out is that when I was about 19 years old, I, I'd been studying martial arts for a few years, uh, probably about six years by that time. And I'd been studying a, a very spiritual martial art called Aikido, which means the way of spirit harmony, for about three or four years at that particular point. And you have videos of that at uh, DaoistInstitute.com? Mm-hmm. Uh, good. And, and then what uh, happened one day, you know, the, 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 the world's leading master of Aikido came here to Los Angeles and taught a class. Now, I'd read the guy's books. He was like a, 
absolute idol of mine. He was the senior student of the founder of Aikido. He was the world's only 10th degree black belt. And so when I heard that this guy was going to come and teach a seminar at my uh, Aikido school in Culver City, I was just, you know, enthralled. And so the day of his seminar, I was a little late. I wasn't late to the class. Maybe it started at 10, but it was about five minutes to 10 when I found a parking space and finally got in there. And I ran into the building. I looked around the mat, and I'm going, oh, the master isn't here. Good. (laughs) So I ran full speed into the dressing room to change into my practice uniform, and I ran right into the highest Aikido master in the world. Damn near knocked him over. (laughs) But he was so sweet. He laughed. He smiled. He says, if there had been room in there, trust me, I would have dropped to my knees and just bowed to this man because I revered him almost like a a god on earth. And... uh, and instead, he says, oh, come on in, Ch- get changed. You know, he couldn't have been nicer and sweeter. Oh. And then when we got on, on the mats, you know, this school had about 25 or 30 black belts. And, of course, a master at his level only uses black belts to demonstrate. But guess who he demonstrated with? Me. He asked Ooh. me to come up there and toss me around like a rag doll. <laughs> <laughs> and afterwards, you know, he taught. He had this one little exercise. It's just kind of a spinning it. You find your center and you learn how to extend your mind, your cheat, your energy out from your center out to the ends of the universe. And then you spin. You start spinning in circles, almost like whirling dervishes, you know, that oh, you've yeah. seen. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. almost like that, almost identical to that practice. And so for some reason, I picked up that I should be doing that every day. As a practice, and from that day forward, every night, at, you know, I was living with my parents at my my parents' house at eleven o'clock at night. I go in the backyard and I do this spinning for one hour until midnight, rain or shine. Wow. If it was pouring rain, I just sat, sp- did my spinning in the rain. I I don't know why I did it, but somehow I picked up from this master that I should do that. I don't think anyone else in the world was doing it like I was, but I picked that up. And after almost to the day, one year of doing that every night for an hour, something happened. The universe opened up. I suddenly dissolved my ego. I suddenly felt myself becoming one with all life everywhere throughout the entire universe. Wow. Uh, I understood. I got it. (laughs) And so I I think that besides the qigong and the meditation and the other practices and the mindfulness and all those other things, I think that as a result of that early experience, I learned what complete kind of unification and wholeness felt like. And now I can always kind of go back to that in my mind. But you you have to have visited there once in order to know where it is or what it feels like or know when you're there. I cannot tell you how grateful I am for having that experience because now when I listen to masters or other teachers talk, I can tell the ones who've been there (laughs) and the ones who haven't. (laughs) You know, there's a quality of being that's there in an individual who has touched the Tao uh, in such a profound way. And um, I think through our program here and through the, the, you know, the, our teachings and the things that we put out, you know, the CDs, you know, the meditations, you know, the practice things, you know, I, I think all of that in my mind is a way to try and help 
us and our listeners move closer to that state. And you know, us talking about the Tao, Tao Te Ching and and you know and Lao Tzu's and Chuan Tzu's teachings. I, I think you know we're 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 trying to kind of get everybody uh, uh, kind of on the gravy train, so to speak. Yeah. And, you know, and ride into this the, into this this state of unity and harmony that ultimately we we actually already are there but we have so many such polarized thinking that makes us feel out of touch with it as if we don't know as if we are not there you know it's uh, turning on the light in the room it's turning on the light and it's remembering who we are and where we come from this is who we are and where we come from and we just need to relax and return to the down